0: Our Father and our God, we bow before you on this day, the Lord's day, to continue to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ that allows us the privilege to worship you. And Father, we pray that we would be mindful of your great salvation, knowing that we have been saved by grace and not of ourselves. We thank you for Christ and his willingness to leave his earthly heavenly throne and come to this earthly place. We thank you Father for his willingness to live a perfect life so that we might have life. We thank you that he was willing to be treated like a sinner though he was righteous and to be put to death on a cross so that we might not be put to death, but that we might have eternal life. We pray, Father, that as we continue to think about all that He has accomplished for us, that our hearts would be filled with gladness and joy. As we look at this passage today, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would give us understanding of these words so that we might likewise be like this woman and have a deep devotion and love for our Savior, that it might be exemplified through our actions each and every day. We pray, Father, for sinners throughout the world today as they sit under the preaching of the Word, that their hearts might be changed by the Spirit and the Word. And, Father, that You would be pleased to bring many into Your kingdom. We pray for Christians, Father, that we might be sanctified by the Word, that we might be cleansed from our sin that we might be challenged by Your Word to walk in the path of righteousness and live for Christ. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that You would meet those needs. We pray, Father, for the day that we will be able to all gather again together in this place and worship You in truth and spirit. We pray, Father, that You would be glorified in all that is said and done in this service. And it is in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake. Amen. As we continue the Gospel of Mark, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. As we begin this new chapter, let us read verses 1 through 9. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 1 through 9. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest the people be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leopard, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flak of very costly oil of spikenard, And she broke the flak and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of as a memorial to her. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Of course, it used to be celebrated up till 1970 on May the 30th, but now due to us wanting an extra holiday on Monday, it's always the Monday before that. On that day, we honor and remember those who have served in our military, who have protected our freedom as a country And rightly so, they deserve to be honored and respected for giving their lives so that we might have freedom. And they are remembered. And we see in this particular passage, what this woman did, Jesus says, will be a memorial for her. And so it is, that's why we are reading the passage today, and we are remembering what she did for our Lord some 2,000 years ago. It is a very solemn event. And another one that presents women in a very good light. Scripture does not demean women. Scripture exalts women. And Jesus Himself exalted women to their rightly just place. And the gospel gives a very good picture of women that loved Jesus and followed Him throughout His ministry. At the end of chapter 12, we saw another woman. Remember the widow lady who went into the temple and she gave all that she had there to the treasury, showing her love for God. Matter of fact, we see in Scripture that most often, that is the women that are exalted and it's the men and the religious leaders who are often represented in a very negative way in Scripture. But we see that women are put in the right place, and this woman likewise is placed in a place of honor. Like other stories, it is a story in the Bible, not merely to take up space, but to teach us truth. We're not merely to be amused by it, but we are to see that God has a work of salvation in individual's life and it reveals to us the work of God by their actions. Now this woman, who is anonymous in the Gospel of Mark, actions are revealed there in verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, verses 3 and following. We see that being there in Bethany at the house of Simon, as she sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flack, very costly oil of spikenard, and she broke the flak and poured it on his head. Now that's all that is said. That's all that tells us about this woman here in the Gospel of Mark. We don't know anything else about her here. Mark is interested mainly in the details that are leading up to Jesus' betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. As we've looked at before, Mark is often in a hurry and immediately. So he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on this particular story and what happened there at the house of Simon the leper. Now let me mention, Simon the leper evidently has been cured because if Simon the leper was still a leper, they would not be having this party in his home. It'd kind of be like the coronavirus today. You would not be going into a home with someone who had the coronavirus and partying if you still had the coronavirus. But if you'd been healed from it, then it'd be okay to go and visit this particular person. So therefore, they're having this party here at the house of Simon the leopard, we are told, and we see that this particular event takes place. Now, we also have to realize that there are those, and I would say the majority of those, that believe that this is the parallel passage to what is said there in the Gospel of John chapter uh, 12 and a similar event, which happened six days before the Passover there in Bethany. And it was at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary was the one that poured the oil on Jesus' feet, it says. Now, most think that this is the same event. They point out the similarities. Well, I'm one of those that do not believe that this is the same event and I point out the differences here. Now, Don Carson explains the differences in that and says that they are the same event, but yet I'm still not convinced. But we have Mark's account of this event and it says that it was two days before the Passover. The woman is not named And they come to the house of Simon the Leopard. Of course, others say that Simon the Leopard was possibly the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that could be. I don't know. I'm not going to argue that point. But we do not have that in Scripture stated. And then also we see here that it says that she poured the oil on Jesus' head with this anointing. Of course, John's account tells us that it was six days before the Passover... And it was at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, which, like I said earlier, uh, they say that possibly Simon was their father. And she poured the oil on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Now, I haven't read what John Carson says, all of what he said in that, and he may be very convincing, but yet... I still believe that they are two different events that took place. Now, there was another event in Luke chapter 7 of a sinful woman coming and weeping over the feet of Jesus and anointing Jesus and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, that definitely is a different event, and these other scholars agree to that. But with that out of the way, we want to move on, and we want to see the contrast that Mark gives us here in these particular verses of this woman and this action and the response of the disciples as well as Jesus. This particular passage, I believe, shows us the difference between true religion and false religion. First of all, I want us to see the false religion that is mentioned there in verse 1 and 2. It says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Him by trickery and put Him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest they be an uproar of the people. Now we have run into these guys time and time again as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. They literally hated Jesus with a passion. They wanted Him out of their life. They wanted Him gone. They wanted Jesus put to death. They wanted to get rid of Him. Now at the same time, they wanted to appear religious. They wanted everyone to think that they were God's chosen men. Now notice their mindset there in verse 1 and 2. I mean, when you look at what they say there and what they wanted to do to Jesus, putting Him to death, and they were going to do it by some deceptive way, some trickery. And of course, we know that trickery was that they used Judas to be able to accomplish their task. And then it says it was during the Passover, lest there be an uproar, they weren't going to do it at this particular time. I mean, what hypocrisy. Here they are about to celebrate the most religious day for a Jew of the year. And notice where their minds are. Their minds is not on the Passover. Their minds are on how in the world will they get rid of Jesus? How will they terminate Jesus? But yet at the same time, they want to look religious, so therefore they're not going to do this act dear in the Passover. They're going to wait to after the Passover before they use Judas to accomplish their deceptive scheme. Now, children, you have learned about the Passover and the importance of the Passover in Sunday school, Right? And I'm glad your teachers have taught that to you. It's very important that you understand these religious holidays that the Jews celebrated so that you can understand that they gave us a type of what would happen when Jesus Christ came. The Jews saw it as the most important feast day of the year. There were three particular feast days that they celebrated at the temple. It was the Passover the Pentecost and then the tents or tabernacles. And they would remember what God had done for their forefathers there in Egypt and delivering them and carrying them through the wilderness that God had spared their lives, that He had delivered them from Egypt and led them into the promised land. Now, of course, the Passover was that very last meal that Israel had there in Egypt. God told them what they were to do, that they were to kill a lamb, they were to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over the door of their home so that when the death angel passed, they would not be put to death with those who did not have the blood, the firstborn that would be put to death if the blood was not over the doorpost. So therefore, it was a very important day for them And the Jews understood that and they celebrated every year except when they were, of course, in captivity. But yet the Jewish leaders' mind was not on the Passover. It was on terminating Jesus by some deception, fraud, uh, setting up some entrapment. And of course we see later that Judas is that tool to accomplish their deceitful scheme. But we see that they would not do it during the Passover. They refused to do it because they were fearful of the people. They were fearful of an uproar. Matthew Henry says, They who desire nothing more than the praise of men dread it nothing more than the rays of displeasure of men. He continues and says, The spirit that works in all the children of disobedience knows how to bring them and to assist one another in their wicked project and then to harden them in it with the fancy of providence favors them. Now we saw in chapter 12, one of the reasons that they hated Jesus was that He gladly was received by the crowd and the crowd followed Him. The crowd heeded His words And therefore, they were jealous of what Jesus had accomplished. And Jesus, of course, never spoke very favorable of them. He was always criticizing them. He was always exposing them. And they, as a result, hated Him even more. Now, there are people just like that today. They seek to look very religious, but in reality, they despise the gospel. They love their religious role as they continue to deceive others by their own lifestyle, which is not walking and pursuing holiness, but living according to their own man-made laws. And there are people who seek to gain religious privileges, seek to reign over other people. They don't know the gospel. They don't love the gospel. They have their works-oriented salvation, which seeks to show others of their religious honesty and builds up their pride. And they say, like the Pharisee, when he prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. John Calvin said, Even so today heaven is locked in the face of poor people under the papacy, while the door keepers... At least those who are entrusted with the responsibility use their tyrannical power to keep it shut. And how sad when religious people lead people astray and shut the door to salvation for them. And anyone who questions or challenges their way of salvation, they seek to destroy. That was done in January 1821. Pope Leo X excommunicated Martin Luther. Three months later, they called him and said that he could come and defend his beliefs before the Roman uh, Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, where there he famously defied the pope. He refused to recant his writings, and the emperor declared him as an outlaw, declared him as a heretic. Why? Because he held to the gospel. He held to salvation by faith and grace alone. It's a sad day when truth is called heresy and heresy is called truth. We even see this in our day. So we must be wise and we must stand strong in the Word of God and we must be like Martin Luther and count the cost even though it might even cost us our very life. These religious men represented false religion. And many fit into that particular category. And we see that when Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 21, when He says that there will be many that stand before Me on that day who proclaim to know Me. They proclaim to know Me because they've done all these particular works, but yet they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ tell them? Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. They think they shall go to heaven because they have done good works among professors of religion, have kept fast, have given alms, have been preferred in the church, as if this would atone for their reigning pride, worldliness, and sensuality and lack of love of God and man. See, those who try to get into heaven by their works will be told that their works are works of iniquity, just like those in Matthew 7. Now second, in this woman we have an example of sincere, true religion, of love for Jesus. It's a sharp contrast from the devilish hatred of these religious leaders. And there's three important truths that I want you to see about her. First of all, what she brought. Children, what did she bring? You've learned that in Sunday school as well. She brought this expensive perfume that was valued more than a man's wages for an entire year. It may have been a family heirloom that was passed down from one generation to the next. It could have been her life investment that she treasured for a rainy day or for her retirement. In other words, it was very, very valuable. It was a prized possession, pure nard, which I'm told was extracted from the root found in a plant in India. In all likelihood, this perfume represented her entire life savings. But she thought nothing was too good to bestow upon her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to do Him honor. You can't help but see the love that she has for Jesus. Husbands, we say that we love our wives, but how many of us have given them a gift of our entire wages for a year. An entire wages for a year. That's what it equaled, this perfume. You may say like how. I love them, but I don't love them that much. I mean, that's a little overboard, isn't it? And I would have to agree. Because see, there's a great difference between our wife and Jesus. We should never give our wives more than we would give the Lord, right? This was the very best that she had, and she gave the very best to Christ. Now, I'm not saying, on the other hand, we shouldn't do this for our wives. Show our love to our wives. What I'm saying, we have to realize that the very best must be given to our Lord. And she brought the very best. Second, she took the perfume and she began to pour it on the Lord's head. I mean, can you picture this scene in your mind? Here Jesus is reclining at the table, and we have to get our American mindset away from the Scripture because they didn't have tables like what we have today. They were low to the ground, and they actually reclined at the table, lying down, leaning on their elbow to have a meal. And we see that Jesus is leaning on His elbow here at the table, and this woman evidently came up from behind and broke this box and began to pour the entire 12 ounces upon His head. The aroma filled the house with this perfume that she poured entirely upon Jesus' head. This is a profoundly spiritual scene. Jesus states that she has prepared His body for burial. See, she must have been moved by the Spirit of God to do this beautiful thing for her Savior, for her Lord. She had been listening to Him. She had been listening to Him more than His own apostles had listened to Him because she understood that He had said that I must go to Jerusalem to be put to death. So she understood that Jesus must be honored with all that she had, giving her very best and not giving back anything of value. Do you give Him the most precious ointment of your own affections like she did? Charles Spurgeon said, The chief beauty was that it was altogether a glorifying of Jesus. She meant when she poured that ointment on His head to honor Him personally. Every drop of it was for Himself, out of reverence for His actual personality. Jeff Thomas says, what we see in the house of Simon the leopard is Jesus Christ in His great office of the church's prophet, priest, and king. And he continues to expound that in his sermon on this passage. Dr. Doug Kelly said, If not none done out of love for Jesus, nothing counts for eternity. Did you hear that? If not done, whatever you do, if not done for the love of Jesus, it doesn't count. It doesn't count for eternity. This was done out of love for Jesus. Third, she gave no thought of what others might think. I mean, she must have known that when she presented this most valuable ointment to Jesus, that she would look, be looked upon as foolish for using such an expensive perfume in this way. And she's right. I mean, read verse 4. They see it that way. Some of them do. But she didn't worry about what others thought. She was so focused on her Lord. She was so focused on her love for Jesus that she could care less what anyone else thought. She was going to do this for her Lord. As Jeff Thomas said, the woman's costly, silent worship clashed with the loud rebuke of some of those who were present, who had taken Simon's food, but brought nothing to Jesus. Judas was one of those. And from the scene he walked out and he goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus. But yet she demonstrates such love. And such love should have been so convicting to the stony ground hearer, but it didn't move them at all. No one could deny such love for her master. They all should have been convicted by this act and their own lack of love at this sacrifice that she made. Charles Spurgeon said, I think this holy woman knew more than all of the Lord's apostles put together. Her eyes had pierced between the veil You remember that only a day or two after this, He rode in triumphantly into Jerusalem, proclaimed as King. Should He not first be anointed? And who would anoint Him to the kingdom visibly with oil but this consecrated woman? She was come to give Him a royal anointing prepared for His proclamation in the streets of the capital city. Thirdly, we again see false religion proclaimed by those who followed him. I mean, it's one thing for those to demonstrate false religion who were not really religious, not true religious. And that, of course, with the spiritual leaders. But here we see those who proclaimed to follow Him, demonstrate false religion. It says that, that they were, there were some who were indignant. Indignant to be pained, to be angry, vexed, to manifest indignation. I mean, can you believe this? It's one thing to contemplate what she did, but it's another thing to be angry, to be vexed. I mean, what right did they have to be angry at this woman? Sinclair Ferguson says the harshness of their response underlies the remaining hardness in their heart, and perhaps also the poverty of their own devotion to the Lord. That's what's exposed. Their own poverty and devotion to the Lord is exposed by their words. And of course, Judas is the main one. Judas just could not stand it. He was so selfish, so prideful. And it reveals his lost condition He sees this wonderful scene, and all he can do is respond with hardness of resolve to destroy Jesus. How wicked can a person be? We must ask that question as we look at his life. I mean, this was a person that had been with Jesus for three years. He had seen all the wonderful things that Jesus had done. He had heard all the wonderful teachings that Jesus had given But his heart had not been changed. He simply got harder and harder and harder. Oh, let this be a warning to all of us to not harden our heart against the Lord and His truth. See, no one can be idle. You're either drawing closer to the Lord or you're moving away from the Lord. Judas adds another layer of steel over his heart by this action. Calvin said, A pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep, the other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. Judas was a wolf. Judas was a thief. And he needed to be driven away. What makes it even worse is that he dresses up his rejection of what this woman did by seeking to make it look pure and righteous. As if he's really and truly concerned about the poor. I mean, he is just as hypocritical as all the other religious leaders who seek to put Jesus to death. And there's many just like Judas acting as if they are concerned about the kingdom of God when all they are concerned is about their own selfish agenda. It's amazing to me how many so-called Christians have literally robbed the church through embezzlement and using church as a tax write-off for some unscrupulous way or many other ways that they seek to deceive the church we see that this is a slippery slope for Judas, which he slides down. For later we know that he sells the king of kings for 30 pieces of silver. Why didn't this woman's love bring this sinner to repentance? Why? Because it shows us the power of, of sin. As Ansel said, you haven't yet realized the gravity of sin. Do you realize it? Do you realize the gravity of sin, not only in lost people, but also in saved people? I mean, there is no specific reason other than the power of indwelling sin and the activity of Satan for Judas to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, there is a struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that is very visible here. I mean, here they are in the home of Simon the Lazarus, Lazarus uh, the leopard, Simon the leopard, I get it right at this private party, and there's this huge spiritual battle that is taking place, a battle between principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world. When you come to Jesus Christ, you come into a fight. There are beasts that you must face. There is a war that is taking place that you enter into. And Judas had even then convicting others or convincing others to join Him. Because it doesn't say just Judas, it said some. Some is always more than one. Again, that's one reason why I believe it's two different instances. Because Judas made the statement, and it mentions just Judas, there at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. And I think after that, Judas probably gathered others around him and said, Look, we can't allow such things to happen. And here it is happening again. And he's convinced some to agree with him that this was a waste of money. So therefore, we see that they rebuked this woman. He could hardly stand such wholehearted devotion to Jesus, which had no other motive than love. For Jesus. Dr. Doug Kelly shared how a young youth pastor who was full of zeal and was teaching the youth, and the youth were being fired up in in what he was teaching them and, and following him and were making a strong commitment to Christ. And one of the fathers of one of the youth was disturbed by this and went to this young pastor and rebuked him and said, Don't you make those young people into fanatics because my daughter is beginning to think that I'm not spiritual. How sad. Evidently, he wasn't very spiritual. The young man did not cower it down, but spoke to him very bluntly, but yet respectfully, and continued to teach with great zeal these young people. See, people usually respond one or two ways to such devotion. It either brings conviction into their own heart and causes them to, or causes them to hate the person that is devoted to Christ, to be jealous of them. And there's many so-called who want to be a Christian, but, but they don't want to be fanatical. They want to be nominal. That's enough for them. Just let me go to heaven. I'll come to church on Sunday and I'll listen to a sermon on Sunday morning. But, but that's about all I'm going to do. Won't they get me into heaven? That's their mindset. They have no real love for Christ. They have no real commitment to Him. They're like Judas, filled with pride and they're blind to their lost condition. Yet Paul says in Romans 5, 5, Because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. If God has shed the love of God in our heart, Then we cannot help but be devoted to Christ. Finally, we see the commentation that Jesus gives there in verses 6 through 9. Jesus responded with a loving appreciation to this woman for what she did. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do good to them. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand and known at my body for barrel. Surely I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of as a memorial to her. Yes, that money could have been given to the poor, but it had been given to the one who was poor. For he himself, who for our sake had become poor so that we might become rich. Now, I'm not saying she understood that truth, but that is a truth. Christ became poor. He left His glory in heaven. He veiled His glory by flesh and came to dwell among such sinful creatures as us. He became poor. So therefore, she is giving to the poorest One of all. Jesus points out that they will have the poor with them always, but He will not be with them much longer. His days are numbered. His end on earth will soon be. Notice there's an interesting but wonderful phrase that we miss, I think, in these verses. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. See, that's all that Christ requires of us. To do what we can. That's what He calls us to do. Do what you have the ability to do. Do what I have given you the ability to do. Use what you have for My glory. I mean... What had her critics done? Nothing. All they had done was complain and get angry. They did nothing to honor Jesus, but she did what she could. She used what she had. Her life savings she brought to Jesus and poured it out upon His head. And Jesus states that her act will be recorded and remembered forever. It will be a perpetual memorial of the true response of one who became poor that we might become rich. This scene was one of a kind. Why were prophet, priest, and kings anointed with oil during the Old Covenant? To set them apart. It was a mark that they were a future king, that they were a future prophet, and strengthened them inwardly as the new bearer of that office. They were all types. They were all foretaste. But now the reality has come. Christ Himself. And it was right for Him to be anointed in this manner. After Jesus was there, after Jesus, there was there was no more kings. There was no more priests. There were there were no more prophets. He was it. He brought it all to fulfillment. And Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So when she poured the oil onto his head, it was a great confirmation of that calling by the Father. He received the anointing from God the Father. And now He is at the right hand of the Father and He has taken upon Himself the name Messiah, the Anointed One. And today, there is no one in all the world who can anoint Him with oil. And we know that the world does not bow down to Him Or confess Him as Lord. But He has been anointed with the oil of gladness by the Father. And He now sits at the right hand of the Father there in heaven. He that lived here on earth for 33 years. He remains holy, harmless, undefiled, free from sin. And now He is higher than all there in heaven and worshipped and glorified. All heaven is filled with the aroma of Christ. The Father's oil that runs down Christ's head onto the glorious garments that He has been given as He fills the universe and is glorified and everyone there in heaven worships Him, crying out that He is the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. God has anointed Him with the oil of gladness above all. And the joy that was set before Him enabled Him to endure the cross and be despised with the shame. And now He is eternally the Son of God there in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus Christ takes the oil which the Father has poured out on Him, and in turn He pours it forth on His people. He pours it out upon them to set them apart. And we cry out, Thy oil is found on Thee. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Son of the living God. Thou art the one that was raised from the dead. Thou art glorified. And we love you and we desire to serve you and worship you. Give us a heart that will exemplify the love that this woman showed you. But as Alistair Begg said in his sermon, we don't love like she loved. He said, I wish I had loved like she loved, but I must admit I don't love like she loved. Does any of us in this room love like this woman loved? But it should be our prayer that we would have that kind of love for our Savior, that we would be willing to give our all for Him, whatever He would have us to do, that we would love Him in such a manner as this woman loved Him, so that it might bring glory and honor our Savior. May it be so. May our hearts be in so in love with Christ that others might see that love exemplified through our actions. Let us pray.